The Athletic. Hello everybody and welcome once again to The View from the Lane, the award-winning Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm your host Danny Kelly and alongside me in the flesh today is The Athletic's Jack Pitt-Brook and on a screen making him look like Big Brother, it is huge, oh because he is huge, that might be life-size for all I know, James Moore. Welcome along everybody and that piece of music you heard at the top of the show yeah, of course, it was the same old song by The Four Tops, written by Holland Dozier in Holland. Um, arguably, Jack, no, not arguably, the greatest songwriting partnership in the history of pop music. Lennon and McCartney would agree, because I spoke to Paul McCartney about it. They wrote Heatwave, Can I Get a Witness, Where Did Our Love Go, Baby Love, How Sweet It Is, Stop in the Name of Love, Nowhere to Run, This Old Heart of Mine, You Can't Hurry Love, You Keep Me Hanging On. They wrote, this is the blueprint for popular music. 20 years ago, I was doing something and I was able to go to Lamont Dozier's house in the canyons above Los Angeles. Oh, wow. um, it was a lovely sort of ramshackle house. The children and grandchildren were running around the place. There were plastic tricycles floating in the swimming pool. It wasn't a very a modernistic affair at all. And we had lunch and we did the interview about what I wanted to talk to him about, which was Michael Jackson as it goes. And then he go, you know, he, he, he was clear that I was a terrible fanboy. He said, come with me. And in a room, and I mean a small room, like a bathroom, there was an old battered upright piano. And for the next 45 minutes, he sat there, Jack, and played me all those songs and sang them to me, just the two of us in the room. He, I, I, re, I actually cried, and he laughed at me. <laughs> it, was, it was great. Which takes us to um, what we're going to be doing today. We'll be looking into... Arguably a much improved performance from uh, Ryan Mason's Spurs, as we must learn to call them again. In a 2-2 draw with Manchester United, it's arguably encouraging. First of all, Jack, you were there. What about the... And people wanted to ask, what was the atmosphere like? Because there was talk of mutiny, no less. I thought the atmosphere was better than I expected, to be honest. Um, going into it, there was a lot of expectation that it would be very, very negative and toxic, specifically towards Daniel Levy. And there were, you know, there were protests outside, although that's not, that's nothing new. You know, there've been quite a lot of home games recently where you've got people outside the ground with their, with their critical banners and yes. singing Daniel Levy, get out of our club, that sort of thing. And during the course of the game, you know, there were a few moments in the first half where you'd hear, we want Levy out, Daniel Levy, get out of our club. But I think the t- and if, if they played badly and if they'd lost badly, then I think there would have been more of that. But I actually think the team was... I thought that was the best they played in a few months, and I think the fans really, the fans wanted to get behind the team, and they did get behind the team because the team gave them something to get behind. And while there were, you know, these kind of uh, brief eruptions of negativity in the first half, there wasn't really any negativity in the second half at all. I thought it was a very positive, supportive atmosphere. And at the end, when you saw the players and Mason walking around the pitch, clapping the fans and the cl- fans clapping them back, it was really a very different outcome from what many of us had expected. Uh, my favourite moment for watching it on the TV was when the Spurs fans chanted, we want Levy out, and the United fans answered with, we want Glazers out. So everybody wanted somebody out. Um, it was everybody out. Um, what did you, um, just uh, talking to you uh, here, James, what did you make of the selection? It was 
I mean, incredibly similar to most of the teams we've seen for the last three months. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a huge divergence from that, which I guess on the basis of what happened on Sunday uh, <laughs> was probably kind of uh, quite calming, actually. Uh, that, I mean, that squad has basically been built to play that system, to play in that way. So it is actually quite difficult for a manager, for any manager coming in to change that completely, especially given the injuries as well. So I think that was a pretty sensible decision to stick with that for now. We saw some of the old failings of that system, particularly in the first half. You know, a midfield two of Hoiberg and Skip up against Bruno Fernandes, Christian Eriksen and Casemiro is obviously going to struggle. It is obviously going to struggle... And we saw the old weaknesses out wide a few times as well. But they really grew into the game. I, I, I was more surprised by the substitutions than I was the starting eleven. I have to say, I think... I, I'm just going to mention this now before you call me out for it. Uh, I, I thought I thought they were insane substitutions. But I think pretty much everyone moved the game in the right direction. Um, in fact, I, what I would say about it is, um, yes, the, uh, the old failings... The midfield two not being able to quite cover the back four, um, the five rather than the back five, but get. But the second goal, so the goal where Dyer gets beaten like a wardrobe, I actually took great um, encouragement from that because at least it wasn't the whole Spurs team stood on the edge of the penalty area being played through. At least it's because half the team, most of the team, was up the field. They got caught almost on the break. I'd rather see that goal conceded than than what we had than what we saw at Newcastle. I mean, I, I tweeted about this last night. I'd be curious to know what you both thought of this. So there was so that that goal came just after Perisic had that one on one that he hit without one to sound like I'm being entirely critical, which he hit more or less straight at the hair. Then he stopped the ball going out for a corner and and gave it to Hoiberg, and it kind of felt like uh, given this team is good at set pieces and they'd had a couple of quite good corners earlier in the game than that. It just seemed to me like it would have been more sensible to have waited, got the corner, got players in the box and tried to find a way to score from there rather than basically just playing the ball back to Hoiberg who then immediately gave it away. Yeah, exactly. So I was obviously, I was sat next to um, Charlie Eccleshire and he literally, as that was happening, he, he said quite loudly, you know, take the corner. Don't don't try and keep the ball in, don't try and keep the ball in play and then obviously you know I don't know ten seconds later eight seconds later uh, Rashford S- made it two seconds I went, I went back in time there after I tweeted it and people complained but actually again I wonder whether I mean first of all weird things happen to teams who are in bad form that that that's that's a fact we just know that from watching enough football but secondly I wondered again though whether it wasn't Ryan Mason subconsciously saying you know be as proactive as you can not playing for set pieces. Um, actually, you know, try and try and play the, the game, you know, at, at a different in a different way, in a different level. I didn't work out there, um, but I I suppose that's the difference between um, the Conte Delini sides we've been seeing is that even when they were two down, and even when they were going two down that first half, because there's an argument, isn't there? There's an argument that it was exactly as the top of the show said, the same old song. So I was put out a team. That goes two down and then scrambles his way back. It was it was like being back in sort of January, February, wasn't it? Um, but I I didn't think that was the case. I, this, whether it's just rose tinted glasses, James, I thought they looked like they were trying to be a little bit more attacking, zippy front foot. All the things that I've been calling for. Now they they certainly didn't play like Sporting Lisbon or someone, but um, they, they, I thought there was a change in attitude. 
Yeah, it, it seemed that way. I mean, I think they started the game on the front foot, actually. I know they conceded quite early, but I think... Of course they did. That's what they do now. <laughs> there were a lot of kind of tweets about uh, how well they'd started compared to Newcastle, and obviously they couldn't really have started much worse than that. But it felt like there was a desire to move the ball forward a bit more quickly. But again, I mean, that, is, that isn't necessarily going to be especially simple with this group of players. It's, this squad has been built to play that system and to play in that style that, that we were so frustrated by under Antonio Conte. So I, I don't think there's really an especially easy way to get the team playing a progressive front foot football immediately. Uh, so it's in a way quite impressive that they actually managed to kind of up all of those attacking metrics. I've not got them in front of me, but there are a few tweets last night. Uh, you mentioned just before we came on air, yeah. this is their, their best XG since October. October yeah. Which is you know, a pretty good sign against the team that yeah, decent would team. have gone third in the Premier yeah. League, I think, if they had won. So, you know, I mean, that, that's a pretty good way of looking at it. On on Sunday, they played the team who are a 4-4 third and lost 6-1. On Thursday night, they played another team who could have been third or fourth and drew 2-2. So it feels like a fairly obvious improvement. And this is part of it, isn't it? That if you have a, a, this structure, which is so predetermined, um, having a little bit of chaos doesn't do any harm at all. And given the form that um, Son's been in, James, James, I, it didn't matter to which side you played him on, really, because he's done nothing in his natural, in his usual position. Um, and he's, you know, we know he's a good player. Richarlison looked be- looks better, and that, that is that is his given position, really. Although Brazilians. Um, would, would disagree with me. Well, I think he might disagree as well. I think he might see himself as a centre-forward. But obviously, at Everton, he played a lot off off the left. And I think that's kind of where we've been wanting to see him this season, given Son's form, as he just mentioned. Uh, yeah, I thought he was really good. And that performance, to me, kind of underlined that that was kind of a summary of his season, really. Like, I thought he played really well, and I wasn't especially worried that he didn't score. Like, he he offers so much more, both on and off the ball, than that. I mean, obviously, look, you, you want him to have scored at least kind of six or seven goals on the basis of the number of minutes he's played in the Premier League now, maybe, uh, probably. But, uh, you know, it, it was he, he did enough to warrant, I think, starting the next game. And I know there's been quite a lot of chat about him. But, you know, every, every time there's like a tweet about the flops of the season, he's always the one that's trending because he doesn't get mentioned in the tweet by whichever banter account it is. But I, I, actually, think, I actually think that's a good shout because I think he's, I think he's, I think he's been pretty good. No, Kulusevski's only scored what one or two Premier League goals this season, and that that many people are saying he's had a bad season, other than Charlie Ackleshaw. I also thought Kane was amazing. I thought that was the best. I know that in the, Kane, sec- in the second half. in the second half in the second. It's a weird thing with Kane, which is that in goal score in a goal scoring sense, he's having an amazing season. Yeah. Like he's on what twenty four Premier League goals. And it's going to be one of his best seasons. He's ever. going to be yeah, it's certainly in his a, best in a season team that's since the sort of peak years. And he's clearly Spurs' player of the season, for what it's worth. But in terms of overall performance level, I just I don't think he has been as good this season as he was in the second half of last season when he was amazing. And but the second half here last night, I did think we were kind of getting back to a bit of that. Um, just in terms of his his creativity with the ball, his intelligence, the precision of his passing, I do think a lot of this is dependent on Son, yeah. in the sense that. Kane looks Kane's passing looks good when Son is good because Son turns his passes into goals. Whereas because Son's been so bad for so much this season, it's actually made it's kind of Kane has suffered from this because he hasn't been creating chances and goals in quite the same way. 
It was last night I thought Son was better, and there were the, I know that obviously the Spurs' second goal came with Kane pulling out to the right and then curling that pass, which Son converted. There was about ten minutes beforehand. Uh, there an was almost another similar replica, one, which, which actually was even better yeah. by Kane. It was he an won amazing the ball, pass. He won the ball in 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 his own half, yeah. turned half their defence, and then played that curling ball. His, his ability to bend the pass around the back of an opposition defence onto a run coming from the other side of the pitch is genius. Um, so yeah, really, really enjoyed watching Kane in the second half yesterday. And I think it should be noted, because I've just given him a, a slight clout there, uh, Son Hun Ming, that that goal was his ninth in the Premier League this season, and he has, for the first time this season, appeared in the BBC's top 20 goal scorers in the Premier League and closing in on the likes of Gabriel Jesus, which he's now level with, um, Phil Foden, um, and just behind one or two people who are thought to be having absolutely amazing seasons, like Almiron and Mitrovic, um, and, and Odegaard for that matter. He's still got a little way to catch Odegaard, to be absolutely fair. Um, yeah, he, 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 he's starting to look a little bit more like himself, insofar as at least he doesn't look like he's bewildered when the ball comes towards him. He's still not getting the touches right. I thought even the goal was a miss hit. Um, but he, he, you know, he, he is getting across the line a little bit uh, more often. Um, can we say, James, that we are now, for the foreseeable, for the rest of this season, we are now having a back three whether we like it or not? Yeah, I mean, that does seem like the most logical conclusion. I mean, uh, as long as, I mean, if, if Emerson Royale is back fit, even when that happens this season, you need either Davis or Sessegnon, I guess, to be fit at left back. And then you're probably going to be playing with that Dyer or Romero, I guess, if you're going to play Longley as a left-sided centre-back. Some people might think that's an easy decision, which <laughs> maybe it is. Romero, uh, Romero uh, sorry, I'm glad you mentioned his name. Um, yes, Kane was better than match. Next best Spurs player, possibly Romero, um, um, or was it just in comparison with the way he played at Newcastle? <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, um, it's probably quite easy to look better than he did on Sunday. But yeah. it, did, it, it felt like a, a more composed performance. He felt a bit more uh, in control of his emotions during the game. Well, according, there according to Jack of... early in the season, everything he does is massively controlled and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and all aimed yeah, yeah. towards Don't take one. his age well. I'm going I'm to blame that on Charlie now. I think that's when yeah, I said Charlie that, said that first. I probably nicked that off Charlie, but now I'm going to allow him to take full responsibility for that one. It's your job, um, he's not he, here. He just, felt, he just felt a bit more like his performance of the last season, really. Like, he was, he was aggressive, but not stupid. There was um, a moment that's come up on... Um, and look, I've, I've, I want to be more optimistic than we've been in the last few weeks because at least there's someone in charge who I believe you know cares about the team and the club now. Um, and so we should make a point that they, they did come from 2-0 down against a, a pretty good team in Manchester United and they deserve a great deal of credit for that. I mean, um, I suppose, James, by the end of it, of course, you would have been um, shouting at television because you think they should have won. I mean, it wasn't that I thought they should have won, but I thought they could have won. And uh, winning the game... Uh, I think would have given him such a big boost for the rest of the season. But I mean, that said, coming back from Tino Dan, as you mentioned, against a very good team, albeit one without a couple of their key players, uh, is not to be sniffed at. But it did, it, 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 I guess it's quite a difficult emotional gear shift when you go from your 2 0 down and suddenly the team is giving everything. They're flying forward, creating chances, get back to 2 1, continue flying forward, continue creating chances, get back to 2 2, and then suddenly back through the gears. Uh, are playing way more conservatively, camping maybe not quite on the edge of their own box, but not too far up the pitch from there. Uh, and then obviously the substitution with Tanganga coming on for Son. I'm not saying any of that is wrong. I think that's all entirely sensible. 
And I think there was a little bit of a debate last night on Twitter among a few people saying, uh, you know, should, should they have gone for it? Should they have gone for the win? Would people have understood if they had lost a game trying to win it? Uh, but I, I think getting a point in those circumstances, I think is going to be it's going to be a very big, a suitably big boost for those players. But it's the exact thing that I always say, isn't it? I want them to risk, and it's the exact scoreline. I always want Spurs to risk losing three two in order to try and win three two. But that's what happened against Bournemouth. Against Bo- against Bournemouth, they had too many attacking players on in the second half, and then cons- and then got done on the break. Of the- at the end and lost 3-2 and it did that was the exact thing I was thinking of towards the end of that yeah. game and to be fair the substitutions were you know and I moaned about it in the last couple of games so I should moan about it again now even though it worked uh, I was I was bewildered by the number of attacking players that were on the pitch at the end yeah I can kind of see why because obviously they had Kulisevsky playing right wing back for quite a lot of the second half um, and I can see why it kind of made sense to to push Kulisewski back into the forward line and and get Tanganga on, so you do have the extra defender. I mean, I look, I, I thought that Mason's substitutions you, you, were better than Ten Hag. You've hearts. answered partly your own, uh, all of our questions here, though. The players you mentioned, um, uh, uh, defenders replacing attackers, attackers replacing defenders. We don't have any midfield players except well, no. Bossar. Spurs have no midfield. Yeah. So the, you know, it's all the, the substitutions are always in danger of looking a bit odd because you can never change the engine room. We're yeah. always changing um, the the fenders on the car and the bumpers, but the engine remains exactly the same it's a lack of um, resource I think that's partly driving the frustration with some of the substitutions so but you know well done for looking like they wanted to win and and getting up and about it there were a couple of interesting things that came out of the game um, some of you will have seen it already on social media Donna Maria Cullen um, Jack will tell me what her exact job is at Spurs these days um, yeah he's um He's just looking. He's got a he's got a notebook full of her pencil written notes here. Where he keeps about Spurs. It's like a a, a bible, and in there is is all knowledge, um, contained within. Um, she's she's listed on the club website as the executive director of. Tottenham. She was sat one row behind Daniel Levy and one seat to his right, so within earshot. And when Rashford got the second goal, she's quite clearly. She said, quite clearly says, this is shit, um, which I thought was a great analysis for a person running a football club. And somebody else has put up an extraordinary pair of pictures of a few years ago, Son uh, being substituted, um, uh, coming, uh, coming off the pitch with his number seven shirt and the exact angle of his body as he, as he leaves the pitch, and he's being replaced by Ryan Mason. Then there's a picture of him last night where he's... He and Mason are exactly the same place on the pitch, but Mason is now the manager screaming at him, and Son is in exactly the same position. It just shows, I think, something about the way the world turns over and the way that football uh, turns over. Um, a question for you both. I guess, you know, this result in Newcastle means that Spurs are not going to qualify for the Champions League. What's the, the ambition for Spurs now? To make sure they follow, qualify for the Europa League rather than for the conference? Or do they... Do they, they don't want to get into eighth place, but you know what I mean. What's behind the question? Um, I think there's kind of two, two connected goals, I would imagine. One is save the mood because it could be very, very miserable uh, if things continue to get worse. And I think... May, but I, I am encouraged on the basis of what we saw last night that Mason will be able to save the mood a bit. Um, you know, stop it from getting too toxic, get the fans back behind the players, make the players enjoy their football a bit more, which is kind of what he did two years ago. I know that they didn't quite get the results they wanted two years ago, but there was an improvement. Um, And the other is 
connected to that is save European football. Like Tottenham need to be in Europe next year. They can't have, you know, it would be embarrassing for them to not be playing in any European competition. Um, Fourth is clearly not going to happen. I think they've got a decent chance of fifth or sixth if they can improve the results a bit, which would mean Europa League probably. Um, Conference League in seventh, again, should be... I'd be surprised if they missed out on that, but it's possible. If they they were to come eighth and get no Europe, then then that would be bad. But then, like I said, two years ago, Mason, what, steered them into European football for the following season. So it's not implausible that they can do it. But uh, yeah, I think that that mood and European football. Uh, James, looking forward to um, Thursday night? Um, it, it probably depends what which uh, which flavour of Thursday night it is. Oh, locomotive I mean, my, 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my my preference of league finish obviously would be fourth, fifth, sixth, eighth. Ah, in that order, yeah. Uh, seventh in that order, I'd say. You'd rather have no European football than have Conference League. I think so. Yeah. What about our I big trip really to see... Athens for the final? I mean, you can still go to Athens if you want. That's fine. You can but you're not going to come with me. I'll I'll sign off your holiday. It's fine. Uh, yeah, I don't really see any benefit. I, I don't think that competition, and obviously it's new, so maybe I'm reading it wrong, but I, I don't think that competition is for clubs like Spurs. It shouldn't. I don't think it's really for clubs dropping down. No, and you're going to end Champions up with the League. first. I mean, it's been a brilliant competition actually, but you're going to end up with the successive winners likely to be a very powerful team from the Italian Serie A, and very possibly a, a very rich team from from the Premier League winning it. James, is this you? Just you trying to have a dig at Mourinho for how much he <laughs> I, loved I mean, winning it last year? Sure, why not? But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Roma, Roma had been in and out of Europe for a few years before that, hadn't they? Yeah, right. I don't. You know, they had, obviously certainly hadn't been in the Champions League loads in the kind of five or six years before. You know, the re- the reason the ro- the reason why the Europa League you can still puff your chest out is because because somebody finally had the common sense to let the winners qualify for the Champions League. You can pretend to yourself that you are in the process of qualifying for the Champions League um, through the Europa League. Um, and if that final is in Athens, if he won't go with you, Jack, I will. Because I'm looking at my producer, who is what's the, what's his words about? Greece is really great, really, really great. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Yeah, welcome everybody back to the second part of tonight's edition of The View from the Lane. I'm Danny Kelly. Jack Pitbrook and James Moore are with me as well from The Athletic. Just a little anniversary to remind you of the, of the day we were recording this. Uh, it is the anniversary of a 1-0 home win over Sheffield Wednesday, which in 1951 secured Tottenham's first ever league championship title. One of two. Um, the second one comes 10 years later in the double team. 
Um, that 1951 team, of course, even I um, haven't seen that one play, but all of the remarks from the time and historical research and Jonathan Wilson will tell you um, it was a complete revolution in English football. Um, Arthur Rowe's push-and-run team where English players had been taught to belt the ball pretty long and then fight for it in, in a 4-2-4 in uh, lineup the Spurs played a much more fluent game, not tick-attacker, but you can play tick-attacker on the pitches, but they did get the ball past the nearest man and then run in support of him, and it left all other teams in the league floundering uh, that year. Unsurprisingly then, since it was a revolution in the way football was being played, um, that team, that 11, it was virtually an 11 who played every game, threw up two, uh, two absolutely astonishing managers as well. Um, Alf Ramsey played right back in that team, went on to change English football by going from 424 to 4-4-2 and winning the World Cup with England in 1966. Bill Nicholson, who played a kind of midfield role in that team, went on to be arguably Tottenham's greatest ever manager. Sometimes, you know, nearly always in sport, the great teams seed something else among the players. Look at American football, the way it happens, that play in those teams. It's funny, we talked, we talked didn't we, the other week about how... Um... Spurs team that won the 1901 FA Cup half of them were Scottish because at yep. that point as you said you know there wasn't football hadn't really taken root in quite the same way in London I wonder with that Spurs team of 1951 whether whether or not it was more based around local London players obviously Alf Ramsey from East London so yeah. maybe he was kind of the local boy of the team or whether they still relied on players from the north and I th Scotland I think, I think it, the game had kind of spread out by then and I, I haven't done that research Jack but of course you're right to mention Alf Ramsey's from uh, Romford um, which has turned out um, Romford Dagenham has turned out so many amazing players and managers uh, for Spurs indeed such was he he spoke very uncharismatically um, Alf Ramsey, but and he also had a very wide East London accent, so he had elocution lessons, mm. which is why he ends up with that rather clipped way of speaking to people um, that we hear, but particularly when he retired as the manager of England and became a TV commentator. The famous incident, I'll tell it again, uh, he was on with Brian Moore watching some game with England and Eastern Europe. The lights went out and poor Brian was left filling 10, 15, 20 minutes of blank screen and he's not getting much help from Alf, who, let's be fair, um, he, he is not Michael McIntyre. And um, he's eventually, in desperation, he says to Alf Ramsey, and this is where Ramsey's not getting involved and his elocution lessons came to the fore. He said to Alf Ramsey, so Alf, um, with all your experience, how long do you think these lights will be out? And Alf Ramsey, on, this is on a blank screen on ICV. I remember this thing, he said, I am not electrician. <laughs> he said to him, I am not electrician. <laughs> Um, listen, we have been taking a lot more of your emails are pouring in. Um, this is from Kieran Allen, who's in Ireland and is um, uh, a glutton, actually, because he says, Hi, lads. First of all, thank you for airing my previous question. Okay, champion email writer. Um, there's something nice about being the first official fan question for an award-winning podcast. Yeah, you get your share of the award, Kieran. Absolutely right. Um, I listened to your recent podcast talking about homegrown players, Spurs, uh, had, had, and it's got me thinking. When Southampton got relegated, was Spurs by when Southampton get relegated? Was Spurs by Kyle Walker Peters back to understudy Porro? Um, with because of course he's allowing for Emerson Royal being off to Real Madrid. Spence being not good enough for the Premier League, etc. He said it might be a good budget buy. Well, I think that Southampton team will go down. There will be and, you know, there won't be takers for a lot of their players, but there's you know there are some there. 
Ward Prowse is more likely, as I'd say, that than Carl Walker Peters if they were looking for players. Well, I think a few of them make sense. I think Walker Peters would make sense. You know, he's the. I think he's a very good player. I think he, Spurs aren't especially well. Spurs don't have great options in that position, depending on what they want to do with Spence. You know, Spence comes back, obviously they wouldn't need him, but if for whatever reason the next manager doesn't want Spence, then maybe he'd make sense. Ward Prowse is someone who Pochettino is a big fan of. Um, Spurs have tried to get him in the past. I can see him. I can see the value of getting him. I'm a huge fan of Romeo Lavia. I think he's been a tremendous player this year. He's so he's such a natural, like incredible, t- finds time on the ball, technically really good. I'd love to see... I mean, I'm sure any club in the country would take him, but I'd love to see him at Tottenham. Yeah, um, this is um, another email then. And this is one from Peter, who actually took these. Uh, I was going to bring make this up myself, but he didn't. He saved me the job of having to do it. Um, because it says, uh, as the club comes up with uh, ever-increasing methods to embarrass itself and us the fans, let me just stop you there. Embarrassment in life is something you can only do to yourself. Don't be embarrassed about being a Spurs fan. Of course you can be angry about the way the team has played and all the rest of it. Stick your chest out. I mean, I'm like, I hear this all the time, even from close relatives. Oh, I'm really, I'm really embarrassed. You can't be embarrassed. That's you. That is your foibles. I'm not sure I dig the embarrassment thing. But anyway, he says the latest form of embarrassment is to replace the caretaker manager with another caretaker manager. I thought, why not keep replacing the manager for each game and the remainder of the season? The candidates for the position should be as follows. He says, a club legend will do one game. Um, I don't know who that could be. Daniel Levy, Paul Coit, I don't know. Um, Daniel Levy would do it the next game. Uh, a season ticket holder or club member, that's where you come in, James. Are you up for it? Yeah, I'll give it a bash, yeah. Three at the back? Uh, with, with this set of players, yeah. Okay, very, very, very conservative. A Spurs celebrity fan, the aforementioned McIntyre, um, a member of the award-winning podcast, View from the Lane. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll volunteer. I would love to manage Spurs for one game. And finally, according to Peter, a member of the existing squad, loaned out players included. Thank you very much, Nat Peter. And also, after a few weeks uh, back, I was at one of Elton John's final concerts. And while he was playing Sorry Seems to Be the Hardest Word, the lyric, It's a Sad, Sad Situation, and It's Getting More and More Absurd, seemed to sum up the current state of Spurs at the moment. Um, this is from um, Luke, who wants to say, I, I write to you today, plead- I love the way people are so formal in these emails. I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, I write to you today, pleading with you to discuss on tomorrow's pod your suggested coping mechanisms for seeing Pochettino in the Chelsea dugout next season. As I write this, I have a knot in my stomach and I feel sick. I'm not even interested in my lunch. I cannot believe this is happening and I'm fraught with jealous feelings. So my question is, how do we cope? We are about to witness the love of our life lining up with the playground bully in full public view. Uh, the, se- the season really is like no other. We are being kicked in the stomach from every angle imaginable. My coping mechanism so far is believing next season cannot be worse. But then the most haunting image entered my mind of Kane in a Chelsea shirt as well. Um, now, I really don't want my lunch. Am I being over emotional or is this really the end of days? Hold me, he says at the end. Thank you, Luke. Um, uh, uh, look, football th- things go swirling around. Um, James, will you be will you be in tears if you see Pochettino in the Chelsea dugout? I, I don't know whether I'll be in tears. I've been quite surprised to see so many people al- already kind of turning on Pochettino, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that's wrong. 
But it's taking a bit longer for me to process, I think, than that. It's going to be incredibly weird. Uh, and, you know, we're working on the basis that this is going to happen and we think this is sure. going to happen. He, he seemed to hate Chelsea more than any other club when he was the manager of Tottenham. He was so... Ra- Obviously, there was the battle of the bridge and then he was so rattled by that that it felt like it was distracting him and the team for the first third of that following season, if you remember. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until they got that game at Stamford Bridge out of the way in, I think it was like November 2016, it must have been, maybe early December, that they actually started like playing really well and winning every week. And then they barely dropped a point after that. Uh, so yeah, it does. It does seem weird. It feels weird. He feels so un Chelsea. I mean, I think that uh, that school bully thing is a good comparison. It kind of feels like sort of a Bluto olive oil kind of mm-hmm. situation, which I guess makes Spurs Popeye a, a spinachless Popeye. Uh, Mace is the spinach man. Come on, well, maybe yeah, uh, yeah. He, he doesn't feel. He just doesn't feel Chelsea. Like everything. The, the way you kind of the way I depicted this guy in my mind, he's just not Chelsea. Like he, he feel, like I genuinely would feel less weird if he went to Arsenal. Genuinely, oh, he just feels like just feels like a better cultural fit than Chelsea, which is just like kind of brash, quote unquote, win now. This phrase you use a million and one times this season. Uh, he he just is his mentality, his personality just doesn't feel very Chelsea to me. It just feels, I, and I know that's because Chelsea are trying to change what they are, and that's why they did this Potter thing that didn't work. But uh, yeah, to me, it just feels incredibly. Even beyond the whole kind of my personal emotions, it just feels like a really weird fit. Well, I mean, I guess I'm the other Spurs supporter in in the room, and I love Pochettino. I love him to to the the actual fibre of my DNA. Um, But if Spurs haven't approached him, and Spurs don't want him for whatever reason... Um, you know that is that is the fact. I mean, I I personally would have been perfectly happy for him to come back. I can see all the problems with it, but I think he would have healed quite a few of the problems very very quickly. But the guy's got to work, and uh, you know, it's not it's we can't support another club. He's a football professional, however devoted he was to the football club, um, and a great big club like Chelsea comes along. He, he's very likely to take the gig. But the comfort I take, Luke, and I'm trying to hold you very very gently here. Um, is that, you know, he'll be Chelsea managed for between 11 and 15 months and then he'll be on his way again. I think part of the issue here is that clearly Spurs fans have wanted and needed closure on Pochettino's time for a while. Like Pochettino, he was, it wasn't just that Tottenham was really good under him, but that he kind of, he brought everything, he made everything he made everything work. Like he made everything make sense. He he brought you know, the academy, the first team, the boardroom strategy, the the fan base, the, the dressing tea room. ladies loved all him. Of these, everything. All of these disparate things, Pochettino unified under this shared kind of culture and ethos, which was stemmed from his own ideas and personality and charisma, in a way that has never was not true at Tottenham before him, and absolutely has not been true at Tottenham since he left. And so, since he's gone. The Pochettino era looks even more like this kind of mm. like hazy golden, like kind of pre-flood era, time at Spurs before before the fall, and so, and so, over time, like the, this, the idea of bringing Pochettino back has become more and more and more attractive, and people have got kind of people have thought the only way we're going to get closure is by bringing him back, and so every you know everyone's been uh, dreaming is probably. I don't know if, I don't know if dreaming is the right or the wrong word but dreaming of this idea of you know Pochettino riding triumphantly into Tottenham on a donkey and everybody kind of w- welcoming him with palms and everything and the sad and now uh, to nick a line from my great friend Dan Kilpatrick they've got closure in the worst possible way 
it's the worst possible sort of closure because the, the dream is dead, basically. Like, he, even if in five years' time he comes back, he won't be the same because he will have been Chelsea manager. He can't come back. There's no way, no, there's no, no way no, that's no. ever happening now. There's oh, absolutely hang, hang, no, 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 hang on. Being Chelsea manager means he's almost certain to come back to Spurs, isn't he? Yeah, but I think I think these two things work together, maybe uh, maybe make that impossible. Just to, just to go back to what you're saying, Danny, about uh, understanding why he took the job. I do, I do, I do understand that, just to be clear. I, I'm not one of these people that thinks he should like be crossing clubs off his uh, list of options just because of where he's been before. Like I didn't really ever believe that he wouldn't have gone to Barcelona just because he'd managed Espanyol. You know, I, I, at the end of the day, he's worked, I think, for one year of the last four or four, for however long it's been, three and a half years since he left Spurs, which for a manager of his standing, given where he was just before that, you know, taking Tottenham to the Champions League final and then the next four years he ends up working for a year and a half. That, that's crazy, really. He he does he does need to kind of really go and prove himself somewhere now, and and I mean like it's a, it's a big it's a big moment in his career now because if it, if he if what happens to him, if what happens to Potter happens to him, and he's out of a job before the last third of the season, uh, he he's really going to struggle to get another top job after that. It's been hard enough for him in the last three years. Yeah, he's you know you think how many of those jobs came up when he was out of work? You know, Manchester United, Juventus. Real Madrid at least once. Inter Milan, Barcelona yep. probably, yeah, most of the biggest. Don't, I, I don't count because they always had their eye on Xavi, didn't they? That was a kind of a, a, a coronation. I but... think it's been a difficult time for him because he's, it's clear that since leaving Tottenham, he's wanted to go and work for one of Europe's biggest clubs. And I, I, I think... That, and, and, sorry, another of Europe's, another biggest, of Europe's biggest clubs. Another of Europe's biggest I think the job that he's always wanted has been Real Madrid. Uh, Real Madrid obviously came for him in 2018 when he just signed a new contract at Tottenham. It was, uh, you know, that new contract didn't have a release clause, so he wasn't able to go. Um, although I think he would have been interested in the idea of going at that point. Um, three years later, Real Madrid came in for him again when he was at PSG. This is the same time that Tottenham came in for him after his, he'd been at P PSG for six months. And, it, and P PSG just said, no, no way we're going to let you go this summer. So he's gone twice he Real Madrid have tried to get him. He twice he's been interested in going to Real Madrid. It's not been possible. I think he would have been interested if the Real Madrid job had come up this summer. But obviously, it looks at the moment like Carlo Ancelotti's staying. Barcelona. I know. I mean, I agree with James. I know in the past he said I can I can coach Barcelona because of my Espanol links. I don't really believe that. I know that he you know he was in the mix for Barcelona at various points when they got Xavi. I think before they got Xavi, um, and that didn't quite happen. Manchester United, clearly, he was in contention but didn't get it uh, when they appointed Eric Ten Hag. I know some Spurs fans are hurt that he's... And I can understand that. But equally, I don't think he can sit and wait. He can't wait for a phone call that's not going to come. Like, if Tottenham are not going to call, and he, he... You know, I think he, he's he been... As James says, he's not worked that much since leaving Spurs. I agree with that. I think it's a mad situation that he's not coming back to Tottenham. Uh, but it, that is only Tottenham's fault. If uh, you know, we our senses, and and I'm I'm saying this as a fan rather than as a journalist, really, that he would have been interested in a job in theory. I mean, maybe maybe they would have had conversations and it wouldn't have worked out. But if he would have taken a job, then he would have seemed like to, to me. It, he feels like the best fit for Spurs of the of the available or likely managers. Like I can't really think of anyone that you'd rather have as Tottenham manager. I'm not saying there aren't better managers, but in terms of knowing that he is kind of a fit for this club. It kind of feels like it makes sense. You're bringing us to another point then because for the first three or four weeks um, that he has the Chelsea job, assuming he does get it, we all assume he will get it, it'll be Pochettino's under pressure. After that, it, it, it will be whoever Daniel Levy appoints because 
Um, you know, if he if he starts to, I I think I think he'll do well at Chelsea. Chelsea have got a pile of brilliant footballers. Just needs somebody to get them into some kind of order. Let's say they start well. Whoever Daniel Levy gets around to appointing will then always have the king, not just the king across the water, he's literally across the River Thames. You could go walk over and look at his team. It's going to be very, very tricky. That's that, That's the ripple that I see that is going to make it the job more difficult for the next Spurs manager. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, because how it relates to Spurs? Because I always, my view for the last sort of six months has been, even though Pochettino was not under consideration at, at Tottenham, that the the public pressure on Levy, the fans singing Pochettino's name, would put enough pressure on that Levy would eventually have to buckle and make the call. And I, and I was wrong because Levy hasn't. hasn't he just doesn't do and that. Hasn't made the call. He doesn't do that. Well, I think I I do think he's not. He does sometimes change his mind based on public pressure. Like you know, he's often sacked. He's not slow to sack managers when the fans turn against him. For sure, example. but I think he wants to sack them. I was my guess. Yeah, I, yeah. but um. Levy hasn't done that at all. He has stuck to his guns on this, which I think is whatever you think of the rights or wrongs of, of it is very brave thing for him to do because clearly it means that whoever he appoints, whether it's Nagelsmann or Luis Enrique or somebody else, there is so much more pressure on that appointment now because whatever, whoever whoever the guy is and however good he is, people will say, we well, could have got Pochettino. Why didn't you go for yeah. Pochettino? Why didn't you go for Pochettino? And Nagelsmann or Luis, from day one, Nagelsmann, Luis Enrique or whoever will be kind of up against it a bit I think with the fans and with the media um because because of who they're not um so yeah a lot a lot of pressure on Daniel Levy to 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 not just to pull a rabbit out of the hat as such but to get it right he's really 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 got to got, got to get it right absolutely well um I'm asking both of you because you work close to the football industry um are they any closer to getting it done never mind right I keep seeing this rotating swirling whirlpool of names um, and yet nobody is still less than sort of four to one to get the job. Jack, what, what do we know? Well, it's been a, a, a slow process. It's been, taught, you know, it started off with Paratici drawing up the shortlist. It, that shortlist was effectively more of a long list. I think it was probably close to maybe about 10 names. I believe that, taught, you know, there's a long due diligence process on the potential candidates, I believe that long that longer list is now coming down to a shorter list with a, a smaller number of candidates on. Personally, at the moment, look, and it, it's only the 28th of April. Tottenham didn't appoint Nuno in 2021 until the 30th of June or something. So in a, in a, in a sense, there could be another two months left. D- this they, run, we can't have this again. Ideally, ideally, let's not repeat that. I know, I know, but I'm just providing context. Um, I would be surprised if it's not Nagelsmann or Luis Enrique. I think those, to me, those two feel and sound like the two leading candidates. Maybe it'll be somebody. Maybe there'll be a surprise. Somebody else will, will come up from nowhere, or maybe it'll be a smaller number. But that that's that's my current reading of the situation. Listen, thank you very much indeed for that. There's a brilliant piece in the Athletic by Charlie Eccleshare that I want to tell you about very quickly. Um, and it's really, really deep dive into the um, the sort of washing machine churn 
of staff at all levels, in commercial, uh, medical, every part of the club. I, I recommend it to you. And of course, uh, I also recommend to you um, everything that's in the athletic, particularly about Spurs and everything else as well. And you should, um, well, if you, you should subscribe, really. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod and sign up right now for one ninety nine a month for the first 12 months. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Uh, thank you, Jack. Thank you, James. Thank you all for listening. Um, we'll be back on Monday, and I'll end by saying that even a half of decent front foot football has made me feel a lot better about Spurs. I love them. I can't help myself. Athletic.